Hi all and welcome to another episode of Three Hair Court Sports Law Teams podcast. Um, today we're discussing salary caps, uh, which were introduced in a new form for EFL's League One and League Two in August of this year, uh, but are a type of salary cap that has been around for some time in Premiership Rugby. Uh, I'm joined uh, today by Ben Cisneros, a uh, trainee solicitor at Morgan Sports Law and founder of Rugby and the Law, uh, which can be seen at rugbyandthelaw.com uh, and on Twitter uh, at rugbyandthelaw. Ben, firstly, hello. Hi, Tom. Thanks very much for having me on. You're welcome. Um, you released an article this week, then, uh, which appeared on uh, Morgan Sports Law's uh, website, which discussed the comparison between EFL, League One and League Two salary caps uh, and that of Premiership Rugby. Um, it's quite a debated topic, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's heaps to discuss um, really about the, the implementation of the League One and League Two salary caps and, and perhaps you know, what can be learned from, from Premiership Rugby's experience with salary caps um, and also the challenges that, that the EFL is likely to face um, at least initially in getting, getting this off the ground. So, I mean, hopefully today we'll, we'll speak through sort of an explanation of, of what is going on in the EFL with the salary caps, um, then sort of explaining how Premiership Rugby's salary cap works so that we can sort of compare the two, look at the challenges that the EFL is likely to face, and then consider really whether salary caps are going to be effective in the EFL um, and, and, you know, the lessons that really can be learned. Brilliant. So plenty to get through. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> um, so I suppose the first place to start really uh, is just an explanation of what the salary caps are for ESL League One and League Two, and then uh, Premiership Rugby, as, as you noted. So I'll, I'll, I'll go first with the EFL League One and League Two salary caps. And um, as I said at the start of the podcast, these are something that have been affected from uh, this season. The announcement was made in August of this year. And, and the rules for um, League One and League Two are very similar, uh, with the main difference being the limit of the salary cap. So in League One, uh, each club must ensure that its squad salary cap value um, doesn't exceed two and a half million pounds, whereas for League Two, uh, it's one and a half million pounds. And and when looking at that squad salary cap value, uh, the calculation used in, in, in respect to that value looks at um, players' gross basic um, salary but then also includes things such as signing on fees, appearance fees, player bonuses, image rights, any loan fees. So essentially a bit of a catch-all, all those sorts of things that you would normally see in a player's contract and associated with that player's contract are all being taken into account. It, even as so far as I understand accommodation or holiday costs and personal or travel uh, expenses as well. Mm. There are some figures that are excluded um, i think there might be similar um sort of scope in the premiership rugby um, yeah, provisions as well um and, and and those figures relate to uh, promotion bonuses and cup bonuses which you know in league one and league two are very significant because you know their main aim is to get promoted or try and have some success in those cup competitions and um, so it can be a real incentive for uh, players having those bonuses um, excluded um, from the salary cap valuation calculation. Um, but then there, there are also other um, points to bear in mind as well when it comes to the calculation of the salary cap. There are transitional issues. Um, so I think, Ben, you and I discussed how much uh, 
is spent by clubs in League One and League Two on wages. Mm. And that, that, that PFA report that came out around the same time as the announcement uh, indicated that for uh, clubs in, in, in League One, uh, the, the total wage cost uh, across all 24 clubs was just under uh, £100 million, which gives an average spend of, of just over £4 million pounds per club. Right. Uh, and that, that was in the 2018-2019 season. Uh, comparatively with League Two, uh, the total wage cost across those 24 clubs was £60 million, uh, which gives an average spend of uh, just over £2.5 million pounds per club. So although those sums might include costs of wages, uh, not in respect of players, it does show that some clubs are likely to be in difficulty to be below uh, the two and a half million pounds and one and a half million pound um, salary cap uh, thresholds. Yeah, and, and, that, and that's that could these... bring, sorry, just to jump in, that okay. could bring its, its own challenges in terms of employment law consequences, trying to adjust contracts and get, get below get below the cap, which is, I guess, why, why these transitional provisions that I suppose you were about to mention are uh, key. Okay. Yeah, precisely. Um, it, it avoids that you know, mess for clubs to have to sort out from yeah. an employment law perspective. So the, the way the transitional uh, provisions of the salary cap rules have been uh, drafted uh, mean that contracts entered between, uh, sorry, before uh, 6th of August 2020, uh, they are excluded in, in terms of what their actual values are. And they're going to be capped at the divisional average salary. So for League One, uh, the uh, average salary will be £113,000 or, or just over uh, for the next season. Uh, and for League Two, it'll be just over £68,000. Um, but there's also similar uh, types of transitional um, provisions in respect of what's known as relegated contract players. So where you have players relegated from you know, the championship who will be earning significantly more uh, than those in, in, in League One and, and likewise from League One to League Two, they upon relegation will also have their salaries capped at the divisional averages that I uh, just referred to uh, for the purposes of, of, of calculating the club's squad salary cap value. So it's beneficial to those clubs that have those transitional uh, provisions in place. They can in the short term benefit from them and try and capitalise on having those more expensive and, and you'd hope better players in their squad um, and it, it gives t clubs time to adjust to uh, being in compliance with uh, the salary cap as well um, and, and that really brings me on to sort of the next point the procedure of it all uh, the way that clubs have to inform the EFL of, of their spending on a forecasted basis, but then also on uh, you know, what's actually happened basis. So mm. to begin with, um, I think it's after five days after today, actually, because the the transfer window closes today, I understand, in, in England for the domestic transfers. Um, clubs are required to provide to the EFL a copy of, of a declaration signed by the club's um, CEO and finance director, or their equivalents. Um, certifying the sums the club expect to pay during the year ahead. Uh, so it's squad um, salary cap calculation. And this will be something that will be done each year. There'll be this you know, estimation of what they're going to spend. But in, in addition to that as well, and, and this will be from next year, of course, uh, on the 7th of July of each year, clubs are required to give to the EFL a, a declaration and calculation of what had been spent in, in the previous year. So there's two sort of um, 
views that the EFL have to look at the way the club's spending on um, salaries. Yeah, and that, that's something that we see in, in the Premiership as well, in Premiership Rugby, um, which I suppose reflects the fact that in the PFA report, um, they note that the EFL draft rules do are aligned with Premiership Rugby's um, salary cap regulation. So I think it's it's not surprising that we've already seen <clears throat> a degree of similarity there because it seems like the EFL has sort of been inspired by Premiership Rugby. Not quite a copy and paste job, but uh, similarity. <laughs> not quite, but yeah. And <laughs> um, you know, one of the main reasons that we're you know, so interested in this is because the enforcement side of things um, and what the EFL will do when it looks at those um, documents given, both the forecasted and what has been spent, um, the EFL can essentially have two sort of avenues. If it suspects that there has been a breach, it can commence uh, an investigation. Uh, and of course, if it's apparent that there has been a breach, then, you know, the uh, applicable sanctions can take effect. But there, there, there is um, something that the EFL can do sort of to prevent sort of strict sanctions. So if the EFL determines that a club is forecasted to be in breach of the salary cap rules, um, the league can, and it's quite similar to provisions that are already in place in respect to the championship's profitability and sustainability rules, they can place the club under an embargo in respect to player uh, registrations and uh, we use of uh, discussions and try and come up with a business plan with the club to try and ensure that you know that forecasted overspend doesn't happen uh, and that they're brought back within um, the salary cap uh, amount but if there is an overrun there are sort of set um, sanctions that can take effect um, depending on how much of an overrun there has been um, so when looking at the, the amount that the spend has been overrun by, uh, there's a set um, amount of sanctions for overruns up to um, 5%. And these amount essentially to fixed fines, which are uh, a percentage of, of the overspend will equate to, for example, you know, a set fine. Uh, so it's all very black and white in, in, in that respect for the clubs to know what they're going to face if they do overrun. Uh, and there are also the uh, additional sanctions of an embargo similar to that uh, preventative measure I say about the forecasting with clubs as well. But if clubs go over that 5% overrun, uh, so they have that sort of cushion threshold, I suppose, that will then be dealt with as a misconduct matter. Uh, and it will be dealt with either by what's known as a agreed decision, uh, which is essentially the EFL board making a sanction uh, or it will be referred to an um, independent disciplinary commission for sanctioning. Uh, and of course, the, the sanctions that are available when it comes to that sort of stage are much more severe than just a fine or an embargo. Uh, you know, they can include things, as we've seen recently with some clubs in um, the EFL championship, uh, points deductions. Um, so that, in a nutshell, is you know, what the salary caps are for EFL League 1 and League 2, how they're going to be applied, and also um, the enforcement of it as well. Thanks, Thomas. That, that's very thorough. And again, as regards the enforcement, it, it's a similar picture in, in Premiership Rugby. Um, like I said, the, the way that the, sort of the declaration and then the certification at the beginning and end of the relevant years work is, is much the same, although we don't have the transfer um, issues, well, not quite the same transfer issues to contend with, I suppose. Um, and then equally, there is this overrun threshold that you're, you're essentially allowed to exceed by approximately 5%. It's the same, it's the same in the Premiership. 
And if you do, there'll be a, essentially a tax, an overrun tax, um, but it's not as severe as if you, if you breach the, the threshold by, by a more serious amount, uh, in which case you could be faced with points, sanctions, fines, uh, et cetera. Um, but sort of to jump back to the, to the beginning, I suppose, um, premiership rugby salary cap is, is much higher than the EFL leagues one and two salary caps. Um, it's currently set at £6.4 million, but clubs are also entitled to have two, what we refer to as marquee players. So that's two players which are not included in their salary cap. Um, this is sort of a concession to the, to the idea that salary caps restrict clubs' abilities to, to sign high-profile players too much. So we have two marquee players that are outside of the cap. And then there are also all sorts of credits available for um, academy players that you've um, brought into your senior squad, for international players you have in your squad. And also, if you have a player in your squad who's injured for the entire season, um, you can claim dispensation. So th there are various things that are excluded, or, or rather you can... Um, essentially increase your cap by, by, by having these sorts of players in your squad. Um, it's important to note though that the premiership salary cap is going to fall from the start of the 2021-2022 season um, for a number of years until 2024. Uh, now this has come about as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and again, that there are transitional provisions to allow this reduction to take place. Um, and what, what has been agreed is that contracts that um, existed before the 18th of June 2020 um, will count towards the, the cap going forward at 75% of their value. Um, so that, that allows some sort of a, a bridging between the, the two levels. However, and this is perhaps something we can get into later, this change has been somewhat exploited by clubs um, to pressure players into signing new contracts um, at, at a lower value um, as part of their COVID-19 response. But the salary cap is, is largely calculated in the same way in the Premiership as it is in the EFL. Um, like, like you mentioned, things like you know, basic salary, of course, is included. Um, equally, national insurance contributions, of course. Payments in connection with um, media work for the club, um, image rights payments, pension contributions, any signing on fees, transfer payments, accommodation, holidays, those things are all included. Agent fees also crucially are included in the cap calculation. But interestingly, um, whereas you said that certain bonuses are excluded from the EFL uh, rules, in Premiership Rugby, bonuses, including match bonuses, win bonuses, uh, or year-end bonuses, are included in the Premiership Rugby salary cap. Things that are excluded, though, are um, any international match fees, of course, because it's nothing to do with the club. Certain, uh, if you have a testimonial year, then you're entitled to have that, receive that um, separate from, from the cap. Um, and then there are also provisions for education fees and certain um, loan players. Certain amounts can be excluded. So broadly similar to the EFL in that respect, although with some subtle distinctions. Um, and then I suppose coming to the enforcement of it. identifies the, sorry, but I was going to say, I suppose that kind of, you compare that to, you know, the firstly, the value of the salary cap in League One and League Two, and you compare it to the, the higher threshold in, in Premiership Rugby. I suppose 
there's not as much impetus or need for those sorts of bonuses when it comes to that level of earning when you compare it to the players in EFL's League 1 and League 2. Um, I, I should have said they're actually in respect of those um, uh, excluded uh, amounts, uh, i.e. Uh, promotion bonuses and cup bonuses, for them to be properly excluded, um, the league does have to give permission for them. So it's kind of a given that they probably will be given permission, but it's still a potential for it to be excluded. Yeah, that's uh, interesting. There's, interesting there's an approval process. Two... Mm. Sorry, I was just saying it's interesting that they've got Sorry, an approval process in place <laughs> because actually the, the Premiership rugby salary cap regulations are currently under review. And this is a very important point to flag because it, they may well change significantly in the near future. Um, and um, that pre-approval process is one thing that has come up in that discussion about the review. Um, but, but sort of, t I suppose, turning back to the, the enforcement issues, it's, it's much the same that there are powers of, of audit and, and investigation for the, the salary cap manager, as he's referred to in the regulations. Um, and of course, the sanctions available, I'm sure, are much the same as in the EFL. Um, of course, we saw Saracens recently sanctioned um, very heavily for breaches of the salary cap in three consecutive seasons. Um, they were hit with a fine of um, over £5.3 million. Um, they were given a 35-point deduction. And, um, of course, they were then subsequently subjected to a further points deduction, a 70-point deduction, which was imposed at the behest of, of the clubs themselves, of their, of their rival clubs. Um, a lot of mystery um, about exactly how and why that was imposed because it was imposed outside of the disciplinary process but we understand that saracens were given uh, the option to reveal their books for this season because the breaches were in, in respect of the previous three seasons and, and they they were given an ultimatum either reveal your books for this year or accept a 70 point sanction which of course um, entailed relegation and ultimately, they, they chose that option. Although, like I say, this, that's largely based on um, media reports and rumours. We, we don't really know what happened. Um, and, of course, that's, that's not exactly satisfactory from, from a legal perspective. But ultimately, Saracens have been relegated from the Premiership for their um, breaches of the salary cap regulations. Um, Saracens, of course, if, if you're not familiar with rugby, are, are the current... Premiership champions and European Cup champions. That could change this weekend, but um, they are the current holders of both the European Cup and the Premiership. So it was a, a very significant decision um, from a sporting perspective and from a legal perspective. That's interesting about the sort of being judged by their peers, so to speak. Uh, I, I know you said it's only, only media reports, but it's a an interesting turn of event and, and yeah and quite a fall from grace from the you know the league champions and the european champions yeah but that point that you made sort of about other clubs being involved in the enforcement process actually reminded me of one provision of the um efl salary cap rules um is that um to ensure the proper observance and enforcement of those salary cap rules um clubs uh, agree to um, inform the league if there are, there are any potential uh, or actual loopholes, lacunae or errors in the salary cap rules, which I think is quite an interesting provision. I, I don't know if you've come across any similar provision. There is, the there is I, I think, exactly the same. There is exactly the same provision in the Premiership rules. Um, 
I don't okay. think that's happened. I don't think these lacunae or lacunae have been have been um, <laughs> have been declared because there's been all sorts of rumours about other loopholes being used by clubs, um, and and obviously not having been declared previously. So I think that governance aspects of the salary cap is something I think we'll touch on later, but um, it's something that needs to be thought through very carefully because I think there's obviously a lot of potential for, for the regulations to be exploited and therefore for the, the objectives to be undermined. One thing I was just going to actually pick up on, on, on the salary, uh, the, sorry, on the Saracens salary cap case was that was the fact that the charges related to breaches from three previous seasons. Um, and of course, one might think, well, why were they not sanctioned at the time? And I think it just highlights some of the difficulties in enforcing salary caps is that obviously some breaches may be hidden and may not come to light for a period of time. There are requirements for clubs to conduct audits, but unless there is a really very thorough investigatory audit, um, you know, there's the potential for things to go um, unchecked. And, And so I think that's something that is very important for for the Premiership and and for the EFL is to be really hot on their enforcement because if if you've got the situation where a club is being sanctioned in some in respect of something that happened three years ago, you're probably not going to achieve the sense of justice for for, for the for their rivals, for example, that um, those rivals would want. No, completely agree, and I think that's something that's been quite a a frequent comment in recent Championship clubs. Um, engagements with or challenges with um, the championship's profitability and sustainability rules, i.e. sanctions being imposed, you know, a season or two afterwards or, or not in the season that the, the breach occurred. But then also that point about um, the relevant period being considered. When, when you look at the championship's profitability and sustainability rules, they're assessed over a three-year period to give a proper picture um, Whereas if, if you're focusing just on that one season, you know, there and then, as you mentioned, Ben, some things might not be completely apparent until after the event. Um, so yeah, it's definitely something to bear in mind. Mm. So I suppose we, sh- we should probably talk about some of the, the challenges to salary caps now. Um, I, I do, I, do we want to deal with the, the competition law question first? I mean, that's been sort of to date probably the most significant avenue for challenge. Yeah, I, I I know you've been um, very analytical in your uh, blogs or your articles, sorry, for uh, rugby and the law on this topic. So I'll probably defer to you on this one, just to give a quick summary of, of what's happened in respect of Premiership rugby. Yeah, sure. So when, when the Saracens charges were brought, um, it was taken to a disciplinary hearing. And one of Saracens' uh, main threads of their defence was... Um, a challenge on competition law grounds that the salary cap itself was unlawful and therefore um, void, essentially. They challenged it on the basis that it was a, a restriction of competition by object as well as by effect, um, and they failed on both counts. Now, importantly, that the panel that made the decision w- was led by Lord Dyson, the former Supreme Court judge and master of the roles. So it was a very authoritative panel. Um, and I think many, many see the dismissal of this competition or challenge as being quite a um, seminal moment for salary caps um, as regards competition law because they were it was upheld um, it was found to be compliant with the EU competition law um, and and actually what the panel decided was that 
the objectives of a salary cap are consistent with the EU law and there was an insufficient harm, insufficient degree of harm to competition. Um, and of course, um, following, you know, lines of cases such as you know, Mecca Medina, um, governing bodies are given a margin of appreciation. And this was something that was pointed out by the panel. So there was an insufficient degree of harm to competition and taking into account this margin of appreciation, it was found to be not a restriction by object of um, uh, competition uh, of competition. So, of course, the aims that I, I refer to are those of financial stability, promoting financial stability and promoting competitive balance. And these are things that have, have come up um, in the past, um, for example, in the context of financial fair play. And they've been upheld there in that context as well. So, you know, there's some consistency there. And then as regards the Saracen's challenge on, on an anti-competitive effect, ultimately that was dismissed because they, they couldn't prove that there was um, an anti-competitive effect, that the, the challenge lacked, lacked evidence, essentially. So I think the question of whether salary caps are compliant with competition laws has probably been put to bed for now, at least. I think that there may be questions about going forward about the, the level of salary caps and, and the lowering of them, whether that is compliant with competition law. Um, and that's something I wrote on in the context of Premiership Rugby's recent decision to um, reduce their cap. Um, and, and then also, I think, perhaps with regard to failures to consult on changes, those aspects are probably going to be more, um, more relevant now rather than a challenge to the very existence of the cap itself. I think the, the Saracens and Premiership Rugby decision sort of led by Lord Dyson has, has probably settled that one for now. Yeah, and I think one of, one of the things that I remember from reading um, Lord Dyson's or uh, that panel's judgment was there was a, sort of a cross-reference to the EFL's championship profitability and sustainability rules as a sort of comparator. And, and, and as you say, as a sort of a general point, you know, these sorts of financial fair play measures they in in and of themselves don't appear to be in breach of competition law. Yes, there might be other points, i.e., the consultation points that you just mentioned. But you know, as a mechanism by himself, it, it seems like the point's been exhausted to a certain extent. And it would be surprising if there was to be a successful um, challenge on that basis in the future. Would you agree? Yeah, I, I think so. Like I say, might be a different story if if the salary cap in question is radically different from the premiership rugby one or if, or if the level of it is is deemed to be particularly restrictive perhaps but yeah i think generally speaking it has been exhausted so do you want to go into talking about the the consultation issues because i think that they're of particular concern to, to the efl or rather of concern to the to the pfa that has sort of threatened to challenge the imposition of or the introduction of the salary caps in, in the efl yeah, absolutely. Um, and and just, just focusing on, on this point of the consultation, I, from what I gathered from uh, the PFA's report uh, that was released, I think it was either the same day or the day after the salary caps being announced for League One and League Two, th this consultation requirement isn't an argument um, you know, planted in EU law. It's something simply that's part of the um, league and governance structure of English football. Um, so, what, what we have is uh, the, the PFA, uh, which is the uh, Union for Professional Footballers, which aims, amongst other things, to protect, improve and negotiate the conditions, rights and status of all professional players by collective bargaining agreements. 
Alongside the PFA um, is the PFNCC, um, uh, which stands for the Professional Football Negotiating and Consultative Committee, which is a bit of a mouthful, so I'm going to stick to PFNCC from now on. Um, and, and what these two bodies do is, is, is that they, they, they work together and, and there is a constitution of the PFNCC, which is provided in the uh, Premier League handbook. Uh, and the PFNCC, as well as having members from the PFA, uh, it has representation from uh, the EFL, uh, the FA, and from the Premier League. And this body um, should be um, consulted on matters that affect the employment uh, rights or, or regulations of uh, professional football players. So uh, paragraph 3A of that PFNCC constitution um, states that the PFNCC shall be the forum in which the members consider matters relating to the employment of and any associated rules and regulations relating to those professional football players employed by clubs in membership of the EFL and the Premier League. Now, what the PFA announced in that report that was released on the back of these salary caps being announced was that that consultation requirements simply wasn't complied with. And I understand also from the announcement that was made along with that report, they invited the EFL to uh, expedite his arbitration um, to consider whether or not the failure by the EFL to comply with that process uh, means that the, uh, the salary cap rules are unenforceable. I.e. do they have to go back to the beginning, so to speak, and go through this proper consultation process um, for any salary cap rules to be properly effective? So although, as things stand, um, clubs are having to comply with the salary cap rules, um, in the absence of any you know, um, statement or notification of whether that arbitration process has started or finished or, or, or anything of that sort, um, there is an element of uncertainty as to the enforceability of the salary cap rules in the immediate future, um, which isn't helpful for clubs because they're obviously having to have their mind, although there's these transitional provisions, they're having to have their mind on how, how do we plan for the future, what players shall we get in, or what players shan't we get in because of these rules. Uh, but it could be at some point during the season, there's, there's an announcement that arbitration has taken place and these salary cap rules are unenforceable because of this lack of consultation. It's not great for anyone really, because you know the players, there's players that could miss out as a result of that. And of course for fans as well, it's, it's, it's not great for, for, for their engagement with the, with the leagues. Um, just this, this uncertainty hanging over it, it's, it's yeah, not good for anyone, especially at, at this time, which is already so uh, incredibly uncertain. Absolutely. And that's on the back of, you know, last year saw so many um, independent disciplinary commission um, decisions and, and charges generally from the EFL in respect of the championship's profitability and sustainability rules. And I, I think there's a perception that things are just a bit of a mess. And to now have this on top of it as well, I don't think it does the EFL any favours um, in terms of governance. And, 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 you know, they're under the spotlight at the moment for many, many other things as well, you know, notably the whole funding issue um, mm -hmm. and you know, Project Big Picture and how that was dealt with. So do you think it's been rushed through? Um, I mean, at a base level, if you haven't complied with the consultation requirements, I think, yes. Um, I, I don't see why you wouldn't go through the proper procedures 
uh, when it's there in black and white and there's a reason why the PFA exists and why that body of the PFNCC exists. Um, it, it seems strange to me that that just hasn't been complied with. Uh, whether it means, it, it, if it means that non-compliance with that ultimately means that the rules are unenforceable, I don't think that's so clear cut, uh, mm-hmm. but it's certainly a strong basis to argue for that uh, conclusion, I think. Yeah, well, it's, there's an interesting point I want to raise with regard to the premiership and the change to the salary cap to the level of the salary cap that was made um, in in, uh, June this year. And and that is that, as far as I understand, there wasn't any particular consultation on that issue. And although, you know, the the respective constitutions of of the relevant bodies are not not publicly available, like with the EFL and the PFNCC, I wonder if, if in any event, there might be a freestanding right to, to be consulted for, for example, the, the Rugby Players Association or, in fact, the players themselves, um, because obviously any reduction in the level of the salary cap um, materially affects their interests um, with regard to contracts, etc. So I, I wonder if there might be grounds for challenge there. I, I suppose that kind of leads on I mean, the talk of all these challenges and how salary caps have been received by clubs and, and I suppose fans generally as well. Are, are salary caps effective? Are, are, they, are there any positives associated with them at all? I think there's the, the obvious it tries to you know, bring clubs into good financial health, tries to perhaps help with um, competitive balance, although that always tends to go a bit askew with financial fair play rules. We've seen you know, with UEFA and, and, and the Premier League as well. What's your opinion in respect of Premiership rugby? I understand there's been a review recently you know, looking at them on, on the whole as well. Yeah, I mean, I think overall, salary caps can be incredibly effective. If, if you look outside of the British Isles, if you look at America, you look at Australia, there's been examples where salary caps have been incredibly effective, um, you know, particularly in Australia, the, the AFL, the Australia Football League, uh, the NRL, um, there's been a huge turnover of champions, which suggests that it's a really competitive league that's thriving. And, and I think generally it's accepted that wages haven't got out of control over there as well. So I, I think the, the aims of salary caps are essentially twofold. You've got the financial element of it, <clears throat> where you're trying to stop clubs from overspending and, and driving themselves into the ground. Um, and then you have the, com- the sporting element, the, the com- competitive element where you're trying to put all clubs on a level playing field and ensure that money doesn't buy sporting success essentially Um, and I think both both aims are really important it seems to me that the EFL is more concerned with the financial element um, because I think it's thought that some of the clubs in in their leagues are sort of on on the precipice so to speak Um, so that's perhaps their, their aim rather than creating a you know, a really, really tight competition. But yeah, I mean, if they're enforced properly and they have um, the right measures around them, I think they can be incredibly effective. In the Premiership, um, I think if they've been effective to, it's been effective to a degree. Um, there's clearly been um, a stop put on, on, on wage inflation, but what has been seen is that there is some sort of a a shift within squads where players, the sort of the, the star players, their wages have continued to rise. Um, whereas players at the bottom and the, and the middle of the squad, they've lost out, particularly in the middle. Those players' wages have, have dropped, if anything. Um, and 
many people think that's perhaps because of this marquee player rule where you have two players outside of the cap. Um, and the idea that, you know, your other star players who are within the cap might look to, to those marquee players and think, well, hang on, he's being paid over a million pounds a year. I, I'm only on 600 grand. I should be paying, being paid more. And so they can still demand um, higher wages. And that just leaves sort of the rest of the squad to fall away. Now, one of the ways that that can be combated um, is by having some sort of minimum wage requirements um, for, for, for the you know, for the lower end of your squad, equally by getting rid of the, the marquee player rule, of course, um, or having fixed squad sizes so that there is some, there is more even distribution of wages across your squad, across the league. Um, and these are things that, again, are seen in, in the USA and on Australia. I say USA, I mean North America, because it's in Canada as well. But I think these, these sort of auxiliary measures really complement salary caps and that's what can make them most effective. I know in, in the EFL, um, they have fixed squad sizes. So I think they're already doing a bit better than, than the premiership in that regard. But I, I, I do wonder if there might still be this imbalance in squads where you still have your star players in inverted commas that are able to, to earn significantly more than, than players at the other end of your squad. And, and I wonder if that, you know, could cause problems going forward. But um, yeah, so that, that sort of sufficiency of the salary cap point, I think is important. Is a salary cap alone enough? Um, I think it remains to be seen in the EFL whether that plus the fixed squad sizes will, will be enough to keep things under control. Hmm. It is, I think, in a nutshell, a really difficult balance to get, isn't it? And what, what are the difficulties with it as well? Obviously, you can look at other sports or other leagues and see what they're doing. But there's an element of you have to almost test it out first before you can actually see how effective it is and then where things are going wrong and mm. what auxiliary measures can be put in place to try and keep the balance right. Um, and yeah, the marquee player point is interesting because even if the marquee player provision isn't there, I still think there's going to be an element of a marquee player or marquee players, particularly with football clubs. There's always a star player no matter how good the squad is overall there's always a top player so you know KDB at Man City there's always that one player that really stands out and invariably gets paid much more um, and that's going to be to the detriment obviously of the the rest of the squad you therefore have to have some limitations on, on what they receive for their wages um, it's a very very sort of give and take but how do you get the right balance without yeah. somebody being annoyed and so, so some people thinking that some clubs are getting an advantage in, in, in some respects as well. I also think one of the biggest challenges um, for European sport is the fact that our sports are um, sort of pan-European. The fact that, you know, we have competitions um, that go, you know, between European countries, but also we have other leagues that are, you know, right next door, essentially. Um, Whereas in, in the competitions I mentioned where the salary caps have been really effective, for example, in Australian sports and um, North American sports, often those leagues are, are closed leagues and they don't really have um, competitors. The leagues themselves don't really have competitors. You know, uh, in Australia, Australian Football League is, is an Aussie, it's Aussie rules, it's an Aussie sport. Um, you don't have anywhere else in the world that does that. So they don't really have the draw of, of players wanting to go elsewhere 
um, they don't yes yeah, so so they they know that you know they can impose a limit and they're not going to lose out on talent necessarily unless they go to other sports of course um, equally in the NFL in in America of course the NFL American football is quintessentially American there aren't really as far as I'm aware anyway major American football leagues anywhere else in the world so there's a big difference there football you've got players that might be coming to play in league one league two who could easily go and play in france in spain in germany um i suppose therefore that there is more risk and there's 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 probably a fear among fans of efl clubs that imposing these caps could make them lose out on on top talent absolutely and you know i think you look at the competition on the pitch as well, but just from a sort of a business perspective as well, I think owners of clubs are minded to make clubs just generally more profitable and more sustainable. And I think over the past 20 to 30 years, you, know, you have league tables of what clubs are the most or have the highest turnover or have made the highest profit. So you almost have a competition in, in that respect of itself of clubs just trying to be as profitable and as big as it possibly can. Um, and how does that fit with you know, these sorts of limitations in place. I, I appreciate we're speaking about League One and League Two clubs, so perhaps not on the same level as you know, these big European clubs, but mm. nonetheless, there is still that element of competition of wanting to be um, the biggest club. And it, looking at the League One and League Two salary caps in more detail on that point, you know, you saw, I think you still see from clubs like Sunderland and Portsmouth, um, you see opposition from them against um, the salary cap because they're the kind of big clubs in League One and Two who have this big fan base who get good revenues from ticket sales, albeit not in current circumstances. But under the old rules, so the I say salary cap, but put in inverted commas, the previous rules prior to the current salary cap rules were weren't a flat cap. They uh, depended upon uh, the revenue or, or the cash injections that could be made by the club. And therefore, with those clubs with a higher revenue from ticket sales and wealthier owners, they could essentially just push that limit up. So it was a very soft cap. Yeah. But they're now in a position where they can't take advantage of that. And you can understand why, because that usually translates to an advantage on the field, why they're opposed to having this new flat cap in place. Yeah, I think, I think it's a really interesting point. The distinction between essentially soft caps... Um, and hard caps, um, hard caps like the Premiership Rugby and the EFL proposal or the EFL cap um, and financial fair play by contrast and the old EFL rules, which essentially, like you said, they fluctuate. And I think those types of models, they are aimed specifically at the financial objective of um, ensuring that clubs don't go bust, that they don't, they don't spend more than they can afford, essentially. Whereas the salary cap the hard fixed cap that's as i see it that's more targeting the competitive balance point um, because yes it does put a limit on what clubs can spend but it means that all clubs spend the same that's the that's ultimately the key point of the salary cap whereas the key point of financial fair play in the old rules was that you don't spend more than you can afford essentially so it's interesting to see why they've chosen the salary cap when they already had this financial mechanism in place um, and so, yeah, I, I can see why some clubs, like you say, like the, your Sunderlands, your Portsmouths, would would object to the cap because it's, it doesn't suit their interests. Absolutely. And 
I suppose l l looking to the future, we, we touched upon um, the uh, the miners' review um, in respect of Premiership Rugby's um, salary caps, and, and bearing in mind it's not a copy and paste job, it's just very similar between um, the EFL salary caps and, and Premiership Rugby's um, salary cap. Do you think any of those comments from the miners' review will, in time, be applicable to the EFL salary caps as well? And do you think this is going to be sort of a a, a bit of an uh, evolving set of rules? Yeah, I mean, I, I would hope so. So just to give a little bit more context, like I mentioned earlier, the Premiership Rugby salary cap regulations are, are currently undergoing a review process. Um, earlier this year, an independent report was published by Lord Miners, who's a former um, government minister, uh, and essentially he, he looked at the rules as a whole uh, and made a 52 recommendations um, as to how they could be improved to make to make the system more more watertight to make it um, essentially stricter so that so that another Saracens case doesn't happen um, or at least if it does that it can be sanctioned in the most severe way that's currently being considered by by Premiership Rugby they've, they've indicated that they're going to adopt it in full so I imagine they're just going through the process of drafting some new rules so I, I would hope that the EFL would have taken the miners report into consideration because it it highlighted a number of um, issues with the existing premiership regulations um, one of the big points that came out of it from my perspective was was the governance of the regulations and of ultimately of the league and uh, the miners report identified a number of instances where the clubs themselves had interfered in the processes of the salary cap for example, imposing a 70-point deduction on Saracens after the disciplinary sanction had already been imposed, um, which affected their relegation. That was one example. There were other examples from, I think, 2015 when a number of breaches were essentially covered up. They were, they were settled, um, but it was all done sort of cloaks and daggers. Um, is very was very much the order of the day. And I think that sort of approach to a salary cap is, is, is not consistent with principles of good governance, transparency, et cetera. So Lord Miners was very, very critical of, of the way that those instances had been handled. Um, so I would hope that the EFL would take heed of that. And he recommended, I think, enshrining a, a commitment from the clubs in the new regulations that they wouldn't interfere in this way. So I think that sort of thing is something that the EFL should be very aware of. Um, and then the other sort of significant things I suppose were, were the sanctions that are available um, under the existing premiership regulations there was no power to strip Saracens of their titles that's something that it has existed in in other leagues such as in, in Australia uh, and Lord Miners recommended introducing that he also recommended increasing the fines and point sanctions available um, and including um, relegation as a potential sanction then there's also the issues to do with um, how, how salary is defined, what's included in, in the definition of salary. Um, and there was a lot of talk about including um, any payments from people that are connected to the club, including potentially sponsors, which I think may go too far. Um, but, but basically the report aimed to tighten up the regulations. And, and, and I think, well, I hope that the EFL read that report before they drafted their rules because ultimately I think premiership rugby's rules are going to change quite significantly in the near future and so that there could be a lot to be taken from from the miners report 
That's, that's interesting, particularly on the um, the sanction point that you mentioned about what's the appropriate sanction for um, breaches of the applicable rules. I, I know with the EFL's regulations in respect of independent disciplinary commissions and the powers that they have uh, when dealing with misconduct, which are you know an excessive breach of the salary cut rules would be. Um, that there's a provision that allows for the uh, disciplinary commission to impose any sanction that it thinks fit. Mm. So th there's no, from what I can recall, express mention to stripping the club of its title or, or, or you know, the points that you mentioned. Uh, but it'd be interesting to see whether that, that sort of um, provision, say giving a wide discretion to the disciplinary commission could encompass those sorts of things. Um, but I, I know at the same time that the EFL has its own sanctioning guidelines, which are something that were considered quite recently with, um, as I say, the championships clubs um, forays with uh, the championships profitability and sustainability rules. It seems to be that points deductions are, are the most severe sort of sanction that they will impose, really. And, and that they do have a you know, drastic effect upon clubs um, if you know they're around that relegation zone or if they miss out on promotion or, or championship as well. One thing that's a feature of the premiership rules on sanctioning is actually that there's a, essentially a, um, a tiered system of sanctioning. So the more severe your breach, the more points you'll get deducted. And it's actually specifically laid out in the regulations that uh, a breach of X hundred thousand pounds relates to um, this number of points. Is that something that's a feature of, of the EFL rules? It's been quite frustrating actually, because I think there hasn't been a release of the sanctioning guidelines. They were yeah. mentioned, I think it was in the Sheffield Wednesday um, decision um, from earlier this year in respect to them selling Hillsborough. Um, and that resulted in them breaching the championship's profitability and sustainability rules. Um, but from memory, I think it was a matter of there's the, the base level of points that should be deducted. And then there are mitigating and aggravating points, which can either subtract to from or add to um, that amount as well. Hmm. It's I just think it's interesting because I think the, the points deductions we've seen in football have been less severe than we saw with, with, with the Saracens case, for example. I mean, I know their breaches were particularly egregious and they went over a number of years. Um, but yeah, it's, it would be interesting to see how far the, the EFL will be willing to go without having the, the sort of express power to to impose something like a 30 40 point deduction yeah really interesting stuff well ben thank you so much it's been really interesting to wade through what's quite a heavy topic but also a very interesting one um i think we'll both be uh eagerly anticipating any developments in respect of um league one and league two's um salary caps whether that pfa challenge is successful um and also to see how things develop for both EFL's League One and League Two, but also for Premiership Rugby as well. Yeah, it's it's a, a fascinating topic. Uh, there's so many facets of it that, that could be delved into in, in, in a lot more detail than we have, but hopefully we've uh, provided an interesting overview of the area at least. Um, yeah, and I, I will be sort of keenly watching for, for developments as regard as regards the, the new Premiership rules and, and how the um, EFL caps um, progress. Brilliant. Well, thanks again, Ben, and I hope everyone's enjoyed listening, and I'm sure there'll be uh, more podcasts on this topic in the future. Thanks very much, Tom.